We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. This talk was recorded at the lunchtime campus Bible study, where it was delivered for university students. Well, friends, I'm sorry about uh, the heavy weather involved in last week's study of Romans 6. It may have to do with the speaker, but it also has to do with the passage, which is indeed heavy weather in terms of the Bible. The good news and bad news is that Romans 7 is only marginally better. It's also a hard uh, week of work that you are just about to put in if you're to follow and understand Romans 7, or what I'm going to say about Romans 7, because it, like Romans 6, is not an easy passage for us to grasp hold of, understand and apply. The really good news is that these two chapters are a marvellous preparation for chapter 8 of Romans, which we're going to take two weeks to look at over the next two weeks, God willing, which is much, much easier, and more importantly in some ways is, as it has been described, the greatest chapter in the Bible. Chapter 8 of Romans is one of the real purple passages. It's one of the chapters that, uh, even though it runs to 39 or 40 verses, is worth learning off by heart as a whole chapter. Uh, it has more applications and implications than almost any other part of the It's a great chapter next couple of weeks. And Romans 6 and 7 clears away a lot of the uh, dead wood and the undergrowth in order to get clear what Romans 8's about, but Romans 6 and 7's the hard work. And so those of you who have done your preparation for this week, have read through the passage beforehand, you will gain three or four times as much as those of you who haven't. I'm sorry about those of you who haven't, but I am glad to welcome you along for your first time, and we're glad that you're with us. Uh, we do uh, hope that you'll be prepared by uh, next week for Romans 8. Reading ahead is a marvellous help, but you will need to work hard even now in terms of the taking of notes, of following the outline, of making sure you can see a Bible. It's almost impossible passage to uh, understand without a Bible in front of you. If you can't look on and see a Bible uh, nearby, raise your hand and someone will pass you one because we love to welcome our newcomers who haven't let, learnt to bring Bibles with them to Bible study. And so just get in a position where you can make sure you can look on with a Bible, share it with them. If anyone else can't see a Bible, just show us now and we'll be more than happy to get a Bible to you because you will know. I think we need some pastor around up that part of the world and do make sure you can see what's being said and get ready to work hard. He who works superficially will gain superficially. So do better than that, won't you? The structure of the whole section, chapter 6 and 7, is dominated by four questions and their answer. And the answer is, by no means. Four times you have this little phrase in the section. Chapter 6, verse 2, by no means. Chapter 6, verse 15, by no means. 7, 7, by no means. 7, 7, I can't see it. Certainly not. It's exactly the same phrase though in the Greek. And chapter 7, verse uh, 13, by no means. Four times he is saying, no, not on, can't be. Each of these questions these objections that have been posed. That is, Paul's been answering questions for a long time and as you preach, as you speak, as you teach a certain line on any subject, you'll find over time that the same questions keep coming back to you. Occasionally you'll find people who have thought out a new and original question, but it's occasional. Usually it's the same questions. We find it as we share the gospel with people so that you can get a book like How to, uh, How to Give Away Your Faith or Know and Tell the Gospel, which helps Christians understand how to share the gospel with their friends. And each of those books have got a section on the seven common objections. Because if you share the gospel with people, you'll have common objections that they raise 
and uh, to which you can therefore prepare beforehand so that you know what people will ask. That is, if you preach about Jesus, then any intelligent listener is going to ask you the question, how do you know about Jesus? To which you say the New Testament, to which they will then come back and say, but how do you know the New Testament is reliable historically? Well, if you put forward the person of Jesus without having done any work on knowing the historicity of the New Testament and the accounts, then you're going to get bold middle stump on the second question, aren't you? Whereas if you know that that's going to come, you can prepare yourself beforehand. Paul is arguing for justification by faith alone in the context of a world made up of Jews who are fanatically concerned with the keeping of the law and Gentiles, especially those associated with the Jews in the synagogue. They have obvious questions they're going to raise and these are the ones over many years he's heard and he's answering. The first one in 6.1 is about the going on of sin. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? It's a funny question to our minds, but you see it comes out of chapter 5 verse 20. Chapter 5 verse 20 he says that grace increases to account for all the sin that you ever do. God's grace goes further than your sin. To which then the answer comes back of those in a legalistic frame of mind, well then we're doing God a kindness. We're, we're offering him the opportunity to extend more and more grace. By our sin, we're doing a good thing for God. Shall we go on sinning so that there'll be more and more grace? Never. Certainly not. By no means. And the answer comes in chapter 6, verses 2 to 14, in which he comes with the conclusion, sin will not be your master because you are not under grace, sorry, you are not under law, but under grace. Well, that gives rise to the second question of verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? I mean, if, if we live under forgiveness rather than under law-keeping, does that mean sin doesn't matter anymore? You can sin any time because you're going to be forgiven. You're going to be forgiven. It doesn't matter whether you sin or not. So sin becomes now an irrelevance. Never. By no means. Certainly not, comes back the answer. And then from verse 15 of chapter 6 through to chapter 7, verse 6, he gives answer to that. We looked at the first half of the answer last week on the slavery image. He says, no, no, we've had a clean break with sin, just like a slave has been freed. We used to be the slaves of sin, which led to wickedness, which led to our shame and to our death, but now we've become slaves of the gospel and to righteousness and holiness and life because we've become slaves of God. Now that we've changed our slavery from wickedness from uh, slavery to sin to a slavery to God, we've had a clean break with sin. We, we can't now say, yes, it's all right to sin. The second argument he uses, which we're going to look at in a few moments' time, is one from marriage and the law in chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. It, it's just like marriage, the law of marriage, ties you up for the rest of your life till death us do part. But once the partner has died, then the law of marriage no longer applies to you and you are now free to go and marry in a way that you weren't. So, he argues, this is what's happened to Christians. We have now died to the law and are now free to live for another. Well, we're going on to it later on. But that raises the question of law. Whereas in chapter 6 he has defended grace in the first two questions, now in the two questions of chapter 7 he defends law. Are you saying that law is sin? for he has a very negative view of law. Look with me to chapter 7, verse 5. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. Now put yourself in the mindset, the mind frame of a person who thinks that the greatest thing in this world is the law of God. 
and that the way of salvation is the law of God and the rule of your life is the law of God and read verse 5 of chapter 7 sinful passions are roused by the law are you saying that law is on the side of sin are you saying the law is evil are you saying law is doing a bad thing for you and so chapter 7 verse 7 what shall we then say is the law sin well no the law is not sin the law is the law of God it's not sin certainly God God forbid let it not be so by no means is again his response that is not the case but he spells out in verses 7 to 12 what he means about the, the law arousing uh, sinful passions the law and its relationship with sinfulness and how because he says the law has taught me sin but the law itself will condemn me and that's why verse 12 the conclusion is the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good well then are you saying chapter 7 verse 13 that the law which is good produces death in me you're not saying the law is sin you're saying the law is good but are you now saying that a good thing is producing an evil result the good law is producing death in me and to which he answers no that's not the case what the law does is that it makes sin plain let me read verse uh, 13 there but in order that sin might be recognized as sin it that is the law produces death in me through what was good so that sorry now I've written misread that haven't I the it must not refer to the law there let me read the whole sentence did that which is good then become death to me by no means but in order that sin might be recognized as sin it that is sin produced death in me through what was good so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful the commandment makes sinfulness apparent makes it come to full fruit but it is sinfulness that brings me to death not law the sin uses the law to bring me to death but it's not the law that brings me to death the law shows up my sinfulness the law gives sinfulness its full force the law is a little bit like a screwdriver friends a screwdriver is a good thing isn't it especially for screwing in screws and for screwing out screws screwdrivers are good things but screwdrivers can be used for murder can't they you can stab someone with a screwdriver you can kill them but that's ridiculous to say well because I can use the screwdriver to murder someone therefore the screwdriver is evil the screwdriver is not evil the screwdriver is good it's just being used for evil purposes but it's more than that it's like having a fight in the uh, in the lounge room and you really are fairly hostile and, and head up and you've got a great deal of hatred about the person that you're arguing with and as you are really getting angrier and angrier and more frustrated and hate-filled so you see the screwdriver lying there now the screwdriver gives you an idea as to what you can do to the other person well it doesn't really I mean the idea comes from within you doesn't it it's a bit hard to blame the screwdriver for lying around in the lounge room it's not the screwdriver's fault that you then stimulated by it given the idea by it pick it up and stab the other person to death the law is there the law is good but the very existence of the law brings sin into its full effect the existence of the law shows you how sinful you really are just as the absence of the screwdriver means that when you cool down an hour or so later you'd say well I didn't kill him I mean I had murderous thoughts but I didn't actually do the deed but because the screwdriver's there you do do the deed 
And so the screwdriver which was meant for life has brought death. The law which was meant for life has brought death. What has the law done? It has exposed how profoundly sinful we are. The law is good. But it has tremendous effects. All right, there's the overview of the passage. And at first glance, it's not really about our kinds of questions, but once you start hearing about the screwdriver, you start to realise that our questions are being answered in a different way, but they're our questions, all right. Because within this chapter, you start to see sin in the life of a believer. How can I still be forgiven when I'm as sinful as I am? How much victory do I expect? How much defeat do I expect as a Christian over sin? What difference is there in being a Christian? Does it change the way in which you, you live here and now? What place has law got in the Christian life? It's a great problem for us, isn't it? I mean, the question of whether, whether you uh, eat sweet and sour pork on Friday night, is the, which bit of the law do you believe in? Which bit of the law don't you believe in? Which bit do you practice and don't practice? Are you a Sabbatarian in terms of taking Friday night from sundown to sundown Saturday off? Are you not taking Friday and Saturday off? On what basis do you choose which bit of the law you're going to keep? Or don't you keep any of the law of the Old Testament? So you go around stealing and murdering and adultery. Is that all right? No, you keep those commandments. Why do you keep these ones and not keep those ones? On what basis do you relate, choose, pick which parts of the law? What is the law for the Christian? Why is the law there? Why do I act contrary to my conscience? Many very important questions are actually answered en route in this chapter, in these two chapters but they're not asked the way you and I are asking them. And so therefore we've got to work hard to see what he is saying in his own terms before we can see how that's actually going to apply to what we are and how we live and how we act. Now, two puzzles occur for the modern reader that prevent us from seeing him in his own terms. And so I've got to spend the next few minutes, I'm sorry it's going to take as long as it is, clearing away some of the undergrowth because whenever modern Christian readers come to this chapter, They've got two puzzles in their heads that I think miscure them so that they do not read what the chapter itself is saying. So I spend a little time on these two puzzles. If you want to have a little nap, this is a good time to have a nap because I'm not really going to tell you what the passage is about now. I'm going to tell you what the passage isn't about but everybody thinks it's about. Right? It's that kind of exercise. It's a terrible bore because at the end of it I'm going to tell you now that you understand that, forget it. Uh, but you've got to understand it before you can forget it. So here we go on these two little puzzles. I'll tell you when to wake up if you're not snoring off too far for me to wake you. The first is autobiographical. That is, on the way through this chapter, he changes his method of writing so that he starts talking about I and me in the first person. Uh, verse uh, 7, for example. Second uh, B. What, what would I, what would, uh, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said do not cover. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very... You see how he's taking it and applying it to himself. He could have said that all in abstract. He could have said that in, like the phrase, apart from law, sin is dead. But he doesn't. He keeps on saying it in terms of, I came to life. I died. I discovered about coveting. You see it most acutely, say, in verse 15. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good, as it is no longer I, it's all about me. And that kind of introspective writing is quite different to the rest of the New Testament, really, and different to the way in which he's argued elsewhere. Why is it so? Well, for many of us, it fits so much with our own Christian experience 
that we see it as Paul describing his own experience and that's why he's done it. We see it as autobiographical and for some people like Martin Luther it just is autobiographical. But Paul and Martin Luther were very different. Martin Luther was a man who was concerned to live by the law of God and overwhelmed by his sense of failure, consistently seeking to find forgiveness and more and more aware of guilt. That's why it fits so perfectly. That's not Paul. Paul was concerned with the law of God. He was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. But he was convinced of his blamelessness under the law. Philippians chapter 3, you can find out about it, circumcised on the eighth day, under the law, blameless. He wasn't overwhelmed by a sense of guilt. And he didn't, in his being overwhelmed by the sense of guilt, find in his reading of scriptures the truth of the gospel of Jesus like Martin Luther did. He was on his road to Damascus, remember, and Jesus appeared to him. And what Jesus discusses with him is not his guilt about sin. What Jesus discusses with him is, why are you opposing me? It's a very different thing altogether. So it's not really an autobiography of the conversion of St Paul. So then why is he writing like this? Well, I think it's a literary device. And it's a literary device that is taking on the, taking up, I mean, it's, it's a helpful, it's a very powerful chapter. It's more powerful than chapter 6 as you read it through because it, as always when you write in the first person, you draw the reader in. That's why those first person novels kind of capture you in. You identify with the author and you get caught up in his ideas and his experiences. It's a good literary device, but it is a literary device to which Paul himself can feel. For anybody who is in the wrestle against sin feels the very things that Paul is writing about here. That's why so many people love this passage like verse 15 and 16. The good I want to do, I just don't seem to be able to do. And the bad things I don't want to do, I just keep doing. How can I ever change? What is it about me? Who will, verse 24, free me, rescue me from this person that I am? That sense of self-disappointment is a sense of all people who wrestle and struggle for the side of righteousness. And Paul knows it although he's not describing how he's gone through any stages of life. I take it it is a literary device. So I doubt whether a Pharisaic Jew like Paul would have ever said, chapter 7, verse 9, that he once lived outside the law. He was a man who was circumcised on the eighth day. He was committed to the law from the eighth day of his life. I'm sure he's not talking about the first seven days when he writes that once I was alive apart from the law. That's not what he's talking about. I don't think it's autobiographical like that. It may be talking even of his conversion when the veil that was removed, 2 Corinthians 3, but let's go on. The second puzzle, which is related to the first, is what state of life is he writing about? Now I need to warn you here that there's a significant difference of opinions amongst genuine Bible-believing commentators. I will, only t- I will tell you my viewpoint um, because it's the right one, I believe, otherwise I wouldn't tell it to you or I wouldn't hold it as my viewpoint. But I'm happy to change, as you will change me later on by telling me where I'm wrong. You can read the autobiographical section in several different ways. Three of them I've listed out for you. The first is the unregenerate. That is, chapter 7, verses 7 to 12, nearly everybody says is about Paul the unregenerate, the pre-Christian, if you don't know the meaning of the unregenerate word, the pre-Christian days. But some, like Wesley, or the early church fathers, or Martin Lloyd-Jones in this century, have seen verses 13 to 25 as also about the the unregenerate. This is Paul describing himself before becoming a Christian. And verse 25, talking about his conversion, thanks be to God, through through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now that fits with lots of what's said there. You see, verse 14 describes himself as unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Well, that sounds like a non-Christian. I mean, back in chapter 6, verse 14, verse, chapter 6, verse 6, chapter 6, verse 17, he said that we who aren't Christians are slaves to sin. You are no longer to be a slave to sin. Formerly you were a slave to sin. So now in chapter 7, 14, he's saying, I'm a slave to sin. Well, he can't be a slave to sin as a Christian, can he? He must be as a non-Christian. Or again, verse 24, he talks about himself being a wretched man who has a body of death that needs rescuing from, which God in the Lord Jesus Christ has done. When? But in his regeneration. And chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, makes no mention of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit regenerating you. No mention of the Holy Spirit leading you in holiness. No mention of the Lord Jesus himself. However, that view has been widely challenged by many because there are also in the same section signs of regeneration. Just as there are some phrases that really seem to fit the unregenerate rather than the regenerate, there are some phrases which only really fit the regenerate. For example, verse 22. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. Well, the sinful man hates God's law and he hates God, the lawgiver. What kind of sinful man delights in God's law? I mean, you're told in chapter 8, verses 7 and 8 that the sinful mind is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. I mean, the very same author is the man who teaches us that the sinful person, the unregenerate person, actually does not like God's law. But you see throughout this section that this person desires to do good, which is the sign of being regenerate. And so in verse 15, verse 18, verse 19, verse 21, he's on again about how I want to do the good thing and I recognise the law is good and I long for the good. Verse 18, I desire to do what is good. So some have concluded that what we have here is a regenerate Christian who is spiritually weak. So there is the weak regenerate. He's become a Christian but really he is still losing in the battle. And the reason he is still losing in the battle is because there's no reference to the spirit. He's still a fleshly Christian, dominated by sin. And he sees the solution in verse 25. The solution is Jesus. But he is continuing in his problem. I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law. I love God's law. I want God's law. But in my sinful nature, I'm still a slave to, of sin. And it's chapter 8 with the introduction of the Holy Spirit that he finds his freedom. Now, some of, the two stage, some of these people see this as a two-stage experience. They see it as a temporal thing. Others see it as a logical thing, not temporal. I'll explain both to you. Temporal has got to do with timing. Some see it that verses 7 to 12 is a non-Christian. Verses 14 to 25, he is a weak Christian. And chapter 8, he's a victorious Christian. And that every Christian goes through these stages. You see, you're a non-Christian, then you get converted, become a Christian, but you're still weak until you experience the second blessing, until you experience the victory life, until you experience the Holy Spirit, until you experience... And then there's a, a new stage. So that Christians come in two phases, weak and strong, beaten and victorious. Are you one of the victorious Christians? You can see the power of that to manipulate Christians into taking all kinds of steps, isn't it? Because if you're an honest Christian, you know that you're a weak one. And so you can easily, it's a terrible heresy that has dogged Christians for years. 
And of course it leads to a perfectionist view because if you're a victorious Christian then you won't be sinning anymore, will you? And of course that means the category of the number of people in that category is very, very few, like zero. The others see it as a logical thing. Uh, Stott, and uh, in his commentary Men Made New and F.F. F. Bruce, see it as a logical thing really that viewed without the spirit, the Christian is weak. But of course the Christian has the spirit and therefore will be strong. But chapter 7 is a partial view. It's, a, it's not telling you this before that, it's just telling you, let me tell you what Christian life is without the spirit. It's weak, but with the spirit we have a victory. And of course we all do have the spirit, so therefore we are all chapter 8 kind of Christians if we're Christians. The third view is the normal regenerate view. That is that this person is not a weak Christian, it's a normal Christian. So Calvin and Augustine, uh, Luther, Cranfield and Murray, 20th century uh, commentators, and I think Bruce and Stott think they are, argue that normal Christian life is a spiritual conflict. That growth in holiness leads you only to greater and greater awareness of sin. That as you grow in your spiritual understanding, you don't grow in such a victory life that you now are aware of your conquest over sin. You just become more and more aware of how sinful you are and how profound and deep and ingrained your sinfulness is. And that is the law doesn't lead to death. It's sin that leads to death. But what the law does is it brings your sin out. It shows you your sinfulness. And so you see the disease that you've got and you see the need for the victory of Christ Jesus. Now personally, I favour view number three. And I'll give you three reasons for which I favour it at the moment. The first reason is prejudice. That is, in my background, that was the first one I was ever taught. And so that's the one that I've grown up in. It also fits in the, my understanding of the whole theology of the Bible and it also fits in my experience, not only in my own life, but my experience of other Christians, that those who have lived the victory life seem to me to be away with the fairies because they will not recognise their own sinfulness because they don't have any sinfulness because they're victory Christians. And I just think that kind of perfectionist nonsense is lunatic. I have therefore had my prejudices reinforced by experience all the time. But I tell you about my prejudice so that you will not be led to accept what I believe because I believe it, but will be warned that there's a certain prejudice element in my choice. The difference between me and other people in this subject is they don't see that theirs is also prejudice. I have two other reasons for holding number three. One, the tense of the verbs. In verses 7 to 12, it's written all in the past tense. In verses 14 to 25, it's all in the present tense. So his pre-Christian day he's talking about as what was but all verses 14 to 25 he's talking about what is. It's not as if it's what it used to be but now I've come to a victory life, it's what is now in Paul's life. And the third reason is 25a speaks of victory but 25b puts you straight back into the bog of the battle. I take it that the victory leads you to the battle. It's not that the battle leads you to the victory. The victory has been won by the Lord Jesus Christ which then puts you into real battle with the evil one. Okay, now's the time to wake up. Because when you, when you look at this chapter, the chapter is not about Paul's autobiography. Paul is not writing the history of his conversion. He does that in Acts chapter 9 or Luke does it for us there. He talks about it in chapter 21 of Luke 9, did I say? Acts 9, I mean. Luke does it in Acts 9. He does it in Acts 21. He does it again in Acts 26. When Paul wants to give you the biography of his conversion, he can do it in Philippians chapter 3. This is not, he's not doing that. He is here answering the questions. 
He's answering the questions, if you're under grace, does that mean sin doesn't matter? He's answering the question, is law sin? He's answering the question, does the good law lead you to death, to the bad thing? They're the questions he's answering. And he happens to illustrate it using this autobiographical device. But that leads people then to get stuck into the whole question, well, what's Paul about? And then if Paul's about that, what am I like about that? And we forget the questions that he asked in the first place. And then we misread the chapter and misapply the chapter because the chapter in its its literary device is so powerful that it's shifted our focus away from what it's actually writing about. It undermines itself because it's so powerful as a literary device. So what's he really about? Three sections. The first one is the clean break with sin, verses 1 to 6. This, as you remember, is the second half of the answer to the question of verse 15, is it all right for Christians to sin? Ever wondered whether it's all right for Christians to sin? The answer is no, it's not all right. It can't be all right because Christians have made a clean break with sin. The illustration used here is the legal bond of marriage. Because marriage is a law, the law applies as long as your partner is alive. When your partner dies, you can then start doing things that you are never allowed to do when your partner was alive. That is, you can go and marry somebody else. And it's not adultery or bigamy. It was that when your partner was alive, but it's not now that your partner's dead. That is, death brings a clean break with the rules that you are living under. So it is with Christianity, verses 4 to 6. And friends, if you're going to look at any section in chapter 7, 4 to 6 is the key part. If you're an underliner, a highlighter, whatever it is, 4 to 6 is the section of chapter 7 that makes sense in itself and can stand away from the rest of the chapter. For in verse 4 he's saying that Christians, to become Christians, to be Christians, died. They died in the death of Jesus to the law and its demands and its condemnation. And thus they are free for another, free to live for the risen Jesus, free to bear fruit for God. You don't push the analogy of marriage too far or you see it won't work. All it's saying is that death brings marriage to an end and then you can live a new life. Death has brought your commitment to the law of Israel, the law of God, to an end. You can now live a new life. But the new life you now live is for Jesus. For the new life you now live is to bear fruit for God. He then puts the contrast in verses 5 and 6. You see, under the old, under the old marriage, if you like, you are confined under your sinful nature to do that which was evil. And what the law did was it aroused it in you so that you used your body to do that kind of evil which brought the condemnation of death. But now under the new, now that the law has been killed in the death of Jesus, now under the new, you have died to the bond the bond of law or the bond of of sin, it's hard to know what it is that was bound you down. You've died to it anyway. You've been released from the law so that you can serve in a new way, a new spiritual way as opposed to the letter way. That is, the old way of reading the law had to do with following the letters. The new way has to do with following the meaning. It's of a different kind. It's a small s spirit, although that could also be the biggest Holy Spirit. We'll return to this section if I can just talk fast enough in the next few minutes. But we see that, shall we sin because we're not under the law? A new spiritual way as opposed to the letter way. That is, the old way of reading the law had to do with following the letters. The new way has to do with following the meaning. It's of a different kind. It's a small s spirit, although that could also be the biggest Holy Spirit. We'll return to this section if I can just talk fast enough in the next few minutes. But we see that, shall we sin because we're not under the law? No. 
Why? Well, because the place of the law is of the old life. But we have now come to a new life. Well, then what is the place of the law? Is the law of God sin? Well, the answer is no. And you'll see the argument, as I've outlined it here on the outline, starts off with a denial and then puts forward the proposition. It explains the proposition and draws a conclusion. Exactly the same as under the next question. The denial? No. God forbid. Certainly not. The proposition? I would not have known what sin was except through the law. That's the key proposition that he's going to explain for us. The law's function, he says, is to give consciousness of sin. And that's a good thing. That's why the law is good. And so he illustrates with the law of the covetousness. Now he knew what the word covet meant. But knowing what the word covet meant is not the same as knowing how covetous you are. You don't know what the word covet means. It means don't be materialistic. Okay, everyone can say we don't want to be materialistic. Even the non-Christians say they don't want to be materialistic. But you will never discover how materialistic you are until you start fighting materialism. As long as you want to tick the square, I'm against materialism, you will go on as a happy materialist. But once you start saying, I am not going to live for possession, and you really put that into operation and seek to search after the kingdom of God rather than possessions, you will start to discover how dominated you are by possessions how much they matter to you, how much time you spend looking after them, how much time you spend dreaming of them, hoping for them, how much you're willing to go through the agonies of university studies to acquire more of them. You never know how conscious, you'll never know what covetous is until you know the law of God and seek to live in opposition to it, in obedience to it in opposition to the things it condemns. That is what the law does. It makes you conscious, it makes you aware. That is, the sin was in me Materialism was there all the time, but it's dormant and unrecognised because I'm a happy pagan, a happy sinner, untroubled by conscience. I'm too sinful to even be aware of my own sin, says Psalm 36, verse 1 and 2. But then the law comes. The law comes and says, this is how you are to live and that is not how you are to live. And all manner of sinfulness becomes apparent, which is why... Sinful people hate wowsers, they hate Moses, they hate Christians, they hate lawgivers because they've been deceived by sin. And what the law does, it makes a rebel, it makes a rebel who is happy as long as he doesn't know what's wrong. You see, it's all the forbidden fruit syndrome, isn't it? That the forbidden fruit is always sweeter. You say to a small child, don't go past this fence. Don't go past the gate because beyond the gate there's a huge cliff and you could kill yourself. So don't go beyond the gate. Now the child being a child is rebellious to their parents and to the character of all children. And so while they were happy playing up near the house, as soon as they've heard the rule that they're not to go past the gate, they've just got to go down that end of the garden, haven't they? Not that they're going to go over the gate or anything like that. They just want to look to see what's on the other side of the gate that they're not allowed to have. Of course, going past the gate means you can still put your feet underneath it, isn't it? That most of your body's on this side still and your head's hanging over. In fact, you could sit up on top of the gate, couldn't you? You still haven't broken the rules. You could sit on top of the gate with your feet dangling on the outside, couldn't you? It couldn't really be that bad over the gate. There is something profoundly perverse about sinful nature that once it's told what not to do, it's got to go and look. It's got to go and find out. It can't really believe that there is a danger over there. Now, was the law, don't go beyond the gate, a bad thing? 
No, the law was a good thing. It was a good thing for a good purpose meant to save your life. But the giving of it, the giving of it to a perverse sinful nature leads to death. That's the argument he is using in Romans 7, 7 to 12. And so, does that which is good bring death? Which is the next question that he answers in 13 to 25. Did, he says, God forbid. No, that's not so. Immediately the denial comes. But what it does is it brings out how sinful we are. It brings recognition of sin as sin and the full flowering of our sinfulness. That is explained in verses 14 to 25. You see, the law is good and holy and spiritual, but the problem is me. I am the slave of sin. I am confused. I am at war within myself. I accept the fact that there is good and right and true. I accept that the law is good. I desire the law in my mind. I want to do the good thing, but the more I want to do the good thing, the more I discover evil lying at hand. The more I don't want to do the bad, the more attractive the bad becomes because I don't know myself. Friends, this is such a true description of human nature, isn't it? All these people who think they're free and moral, they're the people who have never struggled with morality. For as you struggle to be good, you will discover how evil you are. That's the character of it. And the Bible is realistic about its understanding of human nature, of how profoundly evil we are because the law of God does it. So don't blame the law. The law just brings me out into the open. Blame me. Here is a profound description of what we are like. And the conclusion? Well, it all looks fairly hopeless. Verse 24, this body is hanging on me, this seat and expression of all my sinfulness. What, could, what answer have I got? What hope have I got? And the answer is God, of course. Verse 25, God is the answer. Not God the lawgiver, but God the Christ giver. For it is in the death of Jesus comes the answer. And so he sums up in verse 25, the state of the Christian mind, I take it. In my mind I'm a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature I'm a slave to sin. Now that's not the end of the story. That's not the totality of the story. He's still got to tell us more about Christ and the Holy Spirit, which chapter 8 gives us, of course. But the true part of the story is that law doesn't bring life because of sin. Sin brings death, but sin is aided by the law. And so there's no return to the law. But you don't have to wait to chapter 8 and next week to find out the answer he's going to come to because chapter 7, verses 5 to 6, give you the answer. You see, now you can have fruitful living. When you go back there, you'll see the character of the sinful nature. It was work in our bodies bringing us death. Whether I was a happy pagan who didn't know any better because I just ignored God's law and ignored my conscience, or whether I was a troubled moralist, aware of my guilt but unable to reform, either way, my sinful nature brought death. Either way... I was living a life that was fruitless. Well, not really fruitless. It produced the fruit of lies. It produced the fruit of broken relationships. It produces the fruit of pain and sorrow and self-centeredness. It produces the fruit that leads to the permanent break with God called death. But by the death of Jesus, I have died to the law and the law's control. And I am now living a different way, no longer under accusation and condemnation, but now living for him who was raised for me and so released from the law, I am now able to live and bring fruit to God. I have this marvellous friend who I have who was rescued out of China in the 1950s. Her family sold her to some kidnappers who kidnapped her and brought her to Australia. What they didn't realise was 
that they'd sold her to kidnappers who actually practiced slavery in Sydney. And for 10 years she lived as a slave in the suburbs of Sydney. Her family back in China fared better than she did. There's no great joy in being rescued if you're going to be rescued for something worse. There's no great joy in being freed from the law in order to live for sin. We have been freed from the law and from sin and from death in order to live a life of fruitfulness to God and righteousness and holiness. That's what we've been freed for, to serve in a new way, the way of the Spirit. This is what, the, this is what hardly anybody can understand outside of Christianity. You see, you can't change people by changing the system. You can change governments all you like. The Italians have been doing it for 50 years. You still don't change people. You can change laws all you like. Mr. Mr. Keating would love to change us by changing the tax laws, but you can't do it really. What you've got to do is change people. How can you change people? I can't, you can't, but God does. By freeing us from law, he frees us from the condemnation of sin and he frees us to live a new life by the Spirit, of which we will find out next week in chapter 8. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, for the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. We pray that each one of us here might know of our own sinfulness and might know of that victory and that we might explore it together to be a fruit for you in the coming weeks. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.